Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode 10. And on today's programme, I talk to psychologist, author and operational researcher Dermot Rooney about his work on tactical psychology, morale and war. Dermot spoke to me from his home in the East Midlands. Dermot, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in tactical psychology? Uh, okay, um, uh, I went. I found myself at university doing psychology um, because I was told it was easy and there were a lot of girls on the course. Uh, and I found myself playing soldiers at the weekend with the university officers training corps. Um, and I had an interview, uh, a careers interview, a formal thing, and I went along and I said, well, I like the psychology, I like the army, is there any way you can do that? And the guy there said, yes, go to the Army Personnel Research Establishment, where I worked last year, until last year, and now I came and did this job. So he put me in touch with his boss, well, his old boss, uh, Chris Elshaw, Skip, um, hope he's still going. And uh, it went from there. So that was 30 years ago-ish, getting on for 30 years. I know, time time does go by a bit quickly. Right, now let's start <laughs> with some definition definitions. What is tactical psychology? Where does it come from? What use is it? And who studies it? Okay, well, that's a lot of questions. So you know, I'll I'll, I'll try and boil them down. Um, so, Mark, once I got that job in APRE, there was a project going called um, that was eventually called Human Factors Input to Operational Analysis. And operational analysis is that stuff. You know, how you put numbers on how quickly a unit advances, for example, or uh, what difference would it make if we use high mass, or what will we do if we get them, and all the stuff in there. Uh, was doing the thing that was saying, we know that the, the moral physical is three to one, but um, where's that number come from? Uh, how can we put that number into our elaborately crafted computer game or into our doctrine or into our training? And it was about quantifying those effects. Um, so tactical psychology got into that. Um, and so the, the, the pompous definition of tactical psychology is the, the art and science of uh, getting the enemy to run by And that's uh, both those words, art and science, inverted quote, inverted quote, you know, air quote because um, they are very artistic. It's what soldiers do pretty much all the time, um, and they're probably going to keep on doing it forever. And uh, the, the science is what geeks like me do, and it's not very scientific. It's, uh, you know, it's all a bit, uh, it's, it's not very formalised, that's what I'll say. We try under tight conditions. Uh, so who does it? That's the third part of the question, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. So who does it? Um, so, so it's all about quantifying the cause and effects of things that look that, that suit doctrine and training and, and fit into operational research. And there's been dozens of people do it. So that original study I did, that had about twenty people contributing to it. Uh, so we had neuroscientists and we had physiologists and psychologists and so on, computer scientists, all all doing so. And lots of operational research guys. They end up doing bits of tactical psychology but we didn't have a name for it and it needed a name it all just blurs into everything that is morale or everything that is everything and it, it gets lost so the tactical psychology bit is that, that really close bit so we gave it that name to separate it from normal military psychology which is 
everything, all of psychology put in the military domain. Operational psychology, which is stuff you do in theatre, which can be uh, interrogation techniques, it can be psychological operations, it can just be keeping your own guys, your own guys happy, you know, doing a version of morale report. Um, and it's the stuff that soldiers do when they're fighting. So rather than strategic stuff, what happened years ago to make you the person you are, operational stuff, the way people, their will, for want of a better word, gets degraded over weeks and months of operations, the drip, drip, drip of casualties and, and privation, uh, to what happens actually in a battle. So things like flanking, which I suppose we'll get onto. Um, so big up a few people, I think. Um, so the ones who've, who've got their name to it, so there's loads of people who worked on it. I just thought of a list. I thought of a list of about 30 people who've done a bit. So uh, we had a study on surprises, and that was that was really good. That came in dead handy. But but the woman who does that still works in defence, and I don't think she wants a name being used. And we did one on esprit de corps, and one on leadership, and these little tiny studies that were all supposed to feed into a giant bigger study. Um, but uh, David Watson, historian, used to work at King's, um, uh, he's worked on, uh, did a bit on flanking for me, uh, again, 20 years ago. Uh, David Rowland, if you've seen Stress of Battle, um, David Rowland, he, so he was really big on what for tactical psychology is the baseline. Um, so he his was uh, nationality factors, about heroism. Um, but all the time, while he was doing that, he kept finding out these, these nuggets of tactical psychology. You know, the, part of the combined is... Is from him. He started that bit and went, oh, that's that. Oh, look, look, it's and, and follow the change of that. Um, you'll know Jim Store. Um, so uh Jim Store's war oh, well, all Jim's books. Sorry, Jim, sorry, something wrong. So he's more about headquarters stuff now. But we him, me, and Dave Rowan did a study called uh, the attack on the will at low level. And from then on, we started calling it tactical psychology because we realized it wasn't attacking the will, because your will doesn't change. Uh, really, so uh, a bad analogy. Um, uh, I haven't had any lunch yet. I'm a bit of a fat chap. I quite fancy eating something. The reason I'm not eating something is there's nothing in the fridge, and I'm talking to you. If the food was next to me, I'd eat. My will hasn't changed. It's just the difficulty, my ability to achieve that aim is limited by the circumstance. So it's all about the circumstance changing what soldiers do. Oh, was that long-winded enough? Oh, you're on, you're on mute. How... Does one have the will to turn off mute and come back to the real world? <laughs> it's all right. Give me a chance to drink my tea. Give me a chance to drink your tea. So if if I if I'm a soldier, that I'm probably yeah. the greatest armchair general and also armchair psychologist, because everybody's a psychologist these days. It's it's dead. Yeah. Um and you don't need any qualifications because it's just common sense. You can come back to me on that later. But if <laughs> if I if I'm a if I'm this brilliant general. And I've got a squad of soldiers. What type of tactics can I employ that attack, I suppose, for want of a better word, the will or the ability for them to actually come back? What makes them run away or surrender? Um, OK, so I'm now concentrating on the big three. If, you, if you've read uh, War Games, Brains and Bullets, um, if anybody wants to buy it, by the way, War Games is a lot cheaper. It's exactly the same book. Please buy that one. Um, uh, I only get 50p for each one. I think it's 50p. <laughs> Uh, so we're focused on the big three, which are the easiest to quantify, because we need to quantify it, because you have to convince, you know, procurers, bean counters, people who fund research, that there's a difference to be made in order to get the funding to understand the effect, to train the effect, to put it into doctrine, etc. Uh, so they're easiest to quantify. They have a big, obvious effect. Um and we can simulate them. We can put them in some form of simulation. So simulation is kind of driving the more recent work that I've done. 
uh, about essentially putting it into computing games. Um, so the big three are uh, uh, threat stacking, which is, we used to call it combined arms. So in the book, it's called combined arms. But soldiers, when you say combined arms to soldiers or, or a lot of analysts, they're thinking big things. They're thinking, you know, we're thinking about an armoured division and uh, an infantry brigade and some air all doing things together. But threat stacking can happen at, at section level or at platoon level. You can use your two-inch mortar at the same time as you use your Brengle. So I'm living in 1945 at the moment, so sorry for the archaic terms. And they, uh, and that gets the same effect. If you, if you combine threats, people have to decide between them. So uh, that, in that example, between indirect fire and direct fire, your response is different. If someone's shooting at you with a machine gun, you get behind something, pop up every now and again, and try and shoot them back. If somebody's shooting you with a mortar, you can't shoot them back, so you want to be in something with overhead cover. And those two things are incompatible. And that takes us to a point you might have been trained and you might have a good idea about what you would do in that circumstance. But because they're dynamically constantly changing, and I, 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 um, the best bit for the psychology is probably, uh, I think it's Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is we do a lot of things almost automatically, like the, the routine we do for changing gear in a car. It, it, it's automatized and that, that's fine. We can just slip straight into that, slip straight in. It's the stuff where we have to stop and think in a dynamic and threatening situation that makes us stop and go to the default setting of kind of essentially doing nothing. So because threat stacking, so it could be using armor and infantry at the same time. That's another one, the, the, the good analogies. Um, but I'm, I'm digressing. So if you threat stack well, if you combine threats, even though their physical effects have not increased, then people are much more likely to surrender. So we get about 25% of people stop fighting if threats are stacked against them in a good way. So rather than, the, the cliche version would be armour and infantry attacking in separate waves. So you can deal with threat A, then threat B. Or artillery and a long gap before the infantry assault. You deal with threat A, then deal with threat B. If they come together, you don't know what to do. And so over time, with a large enough sample, uh, you get about 25% of people stop fighting. So um, what are the other two? The other two are flanking. So everybody knows what flanking is. You, you attack people from flank. And all soldiers are good, are good with this. They're all quite happy with it. Oh, yeah, it's got a moral effect. Yes, I know that. Tickety boo. Um, and with that, you get about half the people that you're attacking. If you successfully flank, about half the people you're attacking withdraw. Some of that is pure, oh, dear, three platoon was supposed to be over there, and now it's bad guys. Something's going wrong. It's that part of the equation. We're not, we're not going to win. I don't want to die. Let's bug out. And some of it is a kind of an organisational thing. You know, it's a professional, oh dear, they're over there. It's the same thing, but, you know, at company level. Um, and that makes about half of people withdraw, which is a good thing. If they get off that position that you're supposed to be assaulting, they get off it. Yes, but they live to fight another day. Why didn't we just murder them all? Um, and, and we didn't murder them all because it's, it's quite difficult. Um, so about half of people withdraw. Uh, and then uh, proximity is when you close with the enemy. And, and that's tricky. It seals the deal, essentially. Um, those guys still in position and fighting when you get onto that position they either die or stop fighting and it seems to be you know that that deal ceiling thing if but it only seems to really work the, the problem i've got at the moment is i'm, I'm digressing <laughs> the problem i've got at the moment is separating that tautology you get onto the position because you're winning and you win because you get onto the position um you have to do the threat stacking or the flanking or both in order to get on the position without loads of your mates dying. Um, but when you get on there, that's when people attempt to surrender or, you know, that last minute thing, they just throw their, throw their hands up. 
and that's within the, the rough term is it within about 50 meters but it depends on terrain so that that one's confusing but we we know it's the deal sealer unfortunately some of the figures i'm dealing with involve a lot of people uh, suffering from the too late pal effect so uh, uh you've just shot my mates now you're putting your hands up it's too late pal um so you know it's not always reflected in surrender figures I suppose just I'm going to just digress and bring in one of the other sort of, I suppose, given to the battlefield that, that many people argue. What about the idea of marshals data that people or soldiers, you know, majority of them don't want to fire their weapon? Is there any evidence for that? And does that impact uh, on our sort of tactical psychology uh, debate? Yeah. So uh, so marshals stuff was kind of made up. Uh, the version I was told and other people say differently. But when I was a young sprog, uh, there's uh, Lionel Wigram's thing which uses the pretty much the same figures based on him uh, fighting in Sicily and watching fighting in Sicily. So Lionel Wigram invented the, uh, the invented was one of the big wigs in the battle schools movement in the 1940s. And he went out to Sicily to see if it was working. And he came back with saying, you know, our soldiers aren't universally brave. We have about this percentage run away, this percentage sheep and folly, and this percentage actually fight. And they were similar to the figures that Marshall came out and out with. Um, and I was told that Marshall just took them and went, oh, that's a great idea. I'll write a book about that and filled in the blanks after that. So, yes, yeah, so Marshall's figure, it's, it relates to Marshall. So all, all the work, so all David Rowland's work, for example, that I'm building on um, was uh, about participation rates and the different participation rates in different unit types. Now, the thing that I suppose annoyed me, my big bugbear with uh, war games uh, by the, the legend that is Leo Murray is that yeah. where did these studies come from? Because I searched it virulently as I would do as, a, as, an, as a pedant academic obsessed with footnotes, and I couldn't find yeah. anything. So where does the evidence yeah. come from all this stuff? No footnotes, no footnotes, no drafts. Yeah, we could have footnotes, we could have drafts, but then we'd have a book. And then we would have had to go, look, as I was telling you about footnotes, my, my, my book bear, currently in my thesis, is, is, is getting all the footnotes to match up. And what I, what I, one of the ones we had for Brains and Bullets was, I, I'm not sure I can quote this correctly, but it was that thing that Dave showed us in that arc thing, 1972 question mark, right? And being able to go from that and the bloke saying, yeah, we did this study group and we did this thing. And on the basis of that, we did that. So I'm, I'm kind of fighting against um, old boy memory and trying to rock. Yeah, we had to try and fit that into a book. We had to try and fit it into a book that somebody would read. So, hey, presto, no, no graphs. Lose two twenty thousand words. Thank you very much. Stick it in this format. There you go. I, I need to. I'm a geek. I like. I like. I like my footnotes. I like my graph. So somebody has somewhere has done these studies, but obviously I, as a civilian, because obviously you you have security clearance and you work the MOD, you've seen these studies. I assume that they are largely confidential and probably will will remain for the foreseeable future. Uh, no, there's there's a lot of it's out there. So if you got, uh, for example. I forget who wrote it, War on the Mind by, it might have been an option, that rings a bell, I can't remember the name. So there's studies that were done in that 1950s era, um, so uh, pre-health and safety, where we, we shot soldiers and made them really think they were being shot at and found out stuff like that. So there's, there's, those things are written up and they're available and they're, they're on, they're on uh, DT, Defence Technology Information Centre, has got a lot of those studies there. But it's the terminology that changes, and a lot of the stuff that we we faced was um, uh, the, the the military version of the file draw problem. So if something gets found out that doesn't back up the procurement of the latest gadget, then it doesn't make it to the report. It gets put in the file draw, and you don't see it anymore. 
so a lot of it suffered from that. Um, uh, there's a few people tell you. So I work for the Army Personnel Research Department. When that folded, um, there were squaddies coming around because we used to have our own soldiers working for us. They would come around. I've been talking about like this box of stuff. If you don't want it, we're going to burn it. And uh, oh, <laughs> chucked in the skip and burned. So there's, there's lots of stuff that's lost. So the way we wrote war games related to this was to get around a lot of that. Um, now what I'm doing, what I've done since is to go back, quantify it, fill it up, fill up the graphs, fill up the footnotes, do all the references, and it's but it's. it's so that neatly segues into my next question. So are there any good historical examples of the use of uh, tactical psychology by armed forces in combat? Um, no. So what we've got is that, that, that's part of the problem. We do a, a, a process of triangulation. Triangulation is a, it's a bad use of the word because we kind of come from three directions. So you get field trials, you get historical data, and you'll get uh, mainstream psychology. So I did that bit about Daniel Kahneman, and that's all about, you know, uh, naturalistic decision-making. So you could find out about that by reading Gary Klein's work, but they don't, they aren't threatening situations. They're great people doing things in, in non-threatening situations very often. Um, and then you'll get the the psychology was based on the uh, DSTL, Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, has a historical analysis archive. So I started there and recoded all their battles. Um, if you look on other historical sites, there was, I'm trying to think of the name, um, but there are, have been these historical databases that have included human factors in them. And you go through those and you pick apart the history bit. And the joyful thing I'm doing at the moment is um, uh, war diaries from 1945 and seeing with the war diaries, the comms logs, they said, this unit was at A at this, at this this point at this time, and this unit was at this point at this time, and this unit was at this point at this time. And from that, you find out flanking that nobody knew about. So quite often you'll get uh, in a regimental history, you'll say, you know, our plucky guy went up and they 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 did a bayonet charge and overran the position and and it was all about what our unit did, leaving out the fact that that position's been outflanked by another unit and that only appears in their ward, uh, and that seems to be the contributing factor that meant most of the enemy ran away and then that, that allowed the bayonet charge that's inverted commas to work. Um, so it's, it's difficult to find. Uh, but soldiers have always done it. So Xenophon, for example, uh, an abyssist, talks about um, small, essentially he's talking about small arms oppression, about throwing stones, arrows, javelins at the end to get them off the position, just to scare them off this balustrade that they were defending so that the assault infantry could get onto the position. Um, there's a bit about flanking in there. There's always bits about flanking. So I think, ooh, uh, I think Jomini does the thing about the, the effect of artillery fire from the rear, paraphrase, sorry, uh, is, is so profound, it's not worth talking about. And it's because it's low-level stuff. It's, you know, generals won't buy your book if it tells you about something that everybody knows is a fact. Um, it's about getting those facts. It is, I, I say it's the tricky bit, but putting it in a computer, it's even tricky. <laughs> so does do sorry i'll start that question again so do armed forces today such as the british army use and apply tactical psychology so it's creeping into doctor a bit there's some mention of it uh, i do some work with a couple of guys uh, for center from time to time um and they say oh look we've got this threat stacking is here we've decided to change the name by the way you've seen your graph well we're going to put it in this oh thank you very much but it, it's a it's a slow process. Um, and that's helped by some of the people who fought in Afghanistan trying to book the trend of 
carry tons of ammunition, wear lots of body armor, so that they could outflank the enemy and close with them, uh, and try to you know do things like stacking threats, even though they didn't know what those terms were. They just do it intuitively. It's about putting on the things that soldiers do anyway. And the problem is that most soldiers learn to do that through the school of hard knocks. And that means the guys that die take those secrets with them and it doesn't get past. So things like artillery suppression, for example. Uh, I'm digressing. Next question. <laughs> if, if the army is only beginning to use it, why has, I suppose the British army is maybe the best example, why have they failed to do it? If it seems such a sort of a, a wonderful magic bullet, as, as, you, as you may suggest. <laughs> so the, the magic bullet, the problem with the magic bullet is it's not magic. So if I'd got a gun, if I'd invented a gun, so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole backstory about how uh, defence research is biased towards procurement. So if you're procuring a new radio, you need research to support the procurement of that radio. So hence the file draw problem, it's supporting the procurement of. So it's all done, designed around machines, it's all biased towards machines. Sorry about this, this is the traditional. Uh, geeks cry my area are funded by. but um it's all directed towards machines so if i had a magic if i discovered some death ray that doesn't do death you point it at the enemy put it on setting a and you pull the trigger and a quarter of them just stop fighting and then you put it on setting b and and fired it again and half of them wandered off and then you put it on setting c and the rest of them surrendered there I wouldn't be talking to you from my home in Derbyshire. I'd be talking to you from my solid gold super yacht in the Bahamas, wouldn't I? Um, but it's not that. It's, it's stuff that soldiers do already, but they don't get feedback for it. It's not represented in, in operational research. It's not represented in any, any procurement process. So it, it, it doesn't get through that. And, and to do the tricks that you need, it always sounds easy. If you, if you play computer games of any almost any description, a computer war game, you know, where you're, where you're God and you're moving soldiers around then threat stacking seems easy. you can you can you can fire on that and then you can tell it to stop but doing it when everybody's being shot at and the radio don't work is really tricky and and the same with flanking so one of our uh, people talk about tez heroism so tactical engagement simulation which is like big laser tag that's our best and it's a lovely bit of kit i mean that's our best collective training tool so we take soldiers to an environment and get them to train to do this. They've been taught to outflank the enemy, for it. But when they get there, when, when push comes to shove, they have to split their force, so you've got to have a fire base, you've got to send some blokes snurgling around like a stream bed, getting wet, getting dirty, getting cold. There's a chance that they're just going to bump into some mines. There's a chance they're going to bump into a, you know some kind of blocking force and get, get mashed up. And then, if they do all that, get onto the position in tears, the enemy just turns and face you and shoot. As if nothing's happened. It's everybody's Robocop. Everybody's universally great. They don't feel those effects. So while things like threat stacking, flanking, proximity are taught in doctrine or, or really doctrine, their de facto doctrine of what gets taught doesn't include that because we've got this laser tag system or worse, just guess work or um, computer games where everybody does. Is that so the answer? I think, I think that's the answer. I was just wondering whether, you know, I suppose in a way, you know, you've heard, you know, like Vietnam where people are obsessed with body counts and things like this. So, you know, I was wondering whether those factors where you've got an attrition based strategy where everybody's obsessed with body counts and they're not really obsessed with maybe taking or holding ground in the same type, type of way yeah. where the machine and the, and the metrics they use, are, you know, you, 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 I suppose, 
change everything to your met metrics by again if you're buying a new laser or whatever some death ray you fight the war that you're expected to fight rather than the war that might win you the battle if that makes sense but then again it's always easy to look at that after the time because these people aren't stupid they're not doing it because they're dense yeah um, the nice um at 1945, where I'm living, their main measure of how well the battle went was how many Germans they captured. Um, because you could count. It was a lot easier to count the Germans you captured than count the ones that were dead. And if you captured a lot of them, you looked up. You know, you got that feedback loop. Uh, we don't have that anymore. Um, you know, we tend to have just bodies and, and this couple of them. And so if you've got a number for the blast radius of a certain thing or the lethality of a certain bullet, etc., that can compete in a, in a procurement. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll quote I've, I've got I've got four quotes prepared all uh, by Nigel Bolton who was uh, the deputy scientific advisor to the Army Council he wrote a paper called Battle Morale which is what we thought we were doing back in the day and I got this off a paper from David Hawke and in the last year three other people have sent me different versions of it so I had this I thought I had the one copy <laughs> but now it's three out of there so you might be able to Nigel Bolton, Battle Morale, 1945. So he, he wrote several versions of it uh, through his time. But anyway, he said, so he, he said, uh, the moral maybe the physical is three is to one, but the fact remains that at a time when literally hundreds of scientists were engaged in studying fragmentation and muscle, muscle velocities, there was not a single man engaged full-time in the study of those morale effects, which are all that 95% of shells, bombs, and bullets produce. Um, and it's the same today. So if anybody does this stuff, does the research side of it, anywhere near full-time is me. But I do it about a quarter of my time, and half of that time is not paid. So, you know, I, I do it off the back of the fact that when I can around the day job of, you know, what colour the button's going to be on this missile launcher and um, stuff like that. So I suppose a question, if, if my enemy's using tactical psychology, how do I defend against it? Uh, no comment. Well, <laughs> there we go. If we do it well, if we do it well, we'll be morally understanding and... Uh, our soldiers can win without killing lots of people. If we start talking about how we can make our soldiers uh, resilient against this stuff, uh, then everyone's going to go down that path. But the number of times we've, you know, okay, so we, we want to make our soldiers psychotically brave. Uh, and you don't want to make soldiers psychotically brave. It's inefficient. It doesn't work. You, you, you're going against the grain. It can be done. Um, and people have done it in various occasions in the past. Just replicate that. Get them to shoot prisoners and you know murder babies or whatever it is. And pretty soon that's all they'll do. So, do you think these ideas will shape the battlefield of the future, however that is defined? <laughs> uh, I think it will continue to be accidental. It'll be it'll be word of mouth learning, learning by experience. So you know, um, it, it, just because of those factors we've talked about before, it's nice. It's nice to know, and it's interesting. And it's fun, and so. on. Um, but uh, it's it's just an awkward struggle. Nobody, nobody cares about it. And finally, where can people learn more about tactical psychology and your work? Okay, so uh, I would say if you if you're, if you're just a civilian, you're just interested, uh, uh, read War Games. It's cheap. It's three ninety nine, I think it is on um, on um, Kindle, uh, something like that, uh, and that will get you into. And if you get into the the, the graphs and stuff like that, if you work in defence. Uh, ping me and I'll send you a uh, report. Um, but obviously, we don't want to send it to absolutely everybody. You don't want a graph going into the wrong hands that's Oh, if you do A, then this happens. And then we find out that the bad guys are doing A. 
we had all that problem with well, we allegedly had that problem with um, uh, Little Heart, didn't we? So you don't want, don't want to get into that. That that area. Dermot, thank you very much for your time. Oh, oh, I'll tell you something. I've not I've not done my three four my other three quotes. Oh, I'm going to do I'll do three quotes to close. How's about that? Let's do that. And I'll these talk. are all from, these are all from Nigel Bolton. Okay. I'm sick of talking about morale. What I want to do now is, fa- get, is to see the army, collect some facts about it. And the next one is about the debate. Oh, you've got him. Small back room. Well done. Um, uh, the debate go- degrades into uh, this, this kind of nothing between the stage, the stage of woolly abstractions in which people talk solemnly about leadership or discipline or group spirit without ever fa- defining the meaning of these phrases in practice. And the all too concrete stage in which the whole subject suddenly generates the discussion about the supplies of beef. So we're trying to get in between that. We're trying to make a model in that. Um, then uh, whether someone fights or not. So this is this is our, our thing, but situationist thing. Um, it depends largely on his estimate of his own chance of escaping death or injury, and the chance of success of the enterprise in which he's engaged. So in contact, his will doesn't change. He still wants to fight just as much. He just thinks he's going to lose, and so it's sensible to stop fighting. Um, I think that's it, and I'm sure I've missed loads. I've missed loads of my bullet points out, um, but hey, <laughs> short and sweet, eh? Short and sweet. That That is the key <laughs> right to good PhD. <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks very much for having us, Tom. It's lovely. <laughs>